Secretary of State Lloyd Austin is in Ukraine to look for ways the West can help against the Russian invasion as winter begins to set in. It's Tuesday, November 21st. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the new tools to make it easier to detect AI-generated fake photos. Also this hour. If you vote consistently and if you vote with intention, you can really make a difference. The often overlooked block of Native American voters in the Southwest and how they might be pivotal in 2024. Plus the circuits inside your brain that can help regulate your salt intake. And former NFL star Barry Sanders talks about his surprise retirement decades ago that still has some fans upset. In sports, Celtics and Bruins lose, increasing clouds in the 40s today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Kristen Wright. The leader of Hamas's political wing says the militant group is close to reaching a deal with negotiators on a possible pause in the hostilities with Israel and the release of some hostages. This as Gaza's health system falls into deeper distress. Michael Ryan is the executive director of the Health Emergencies Program at the World Health Organization. We are seeing a complete collapse of the of the higher level infrastructure of the Gazan health system. It is just the most basic of needs that can be met now. Ryan says a handful of hospitals in Gaza are able to function still and adds recent heavy rain is flooding out makeshift camps and heightening the risks of infection and disease. The Supreme Court in Wisconsin will hear arguments today in a redistricting case that could lead to new legislative maps by next year's elections. Chuck Kornbach with member station WUWM reports one main issue is so-called voter islands. Most of Wisconsin's 132 state assembly and senate seats have small neighborhoods or areas that are disconnected from the rest of the district. Attorney Jeff Mandel represents Democratic voters in the redistricting case. He says these islands isolate many people from their government. You want as much as possible that your neighbors share your same elected representative, and so you can discuss issues and you can organize. Mandel says the Wisconsin Constitution requires districts to be contiguous. But lawyers for more conservative voters say mapmakers have long been allowed to keep towns and other communities in the same legislative district, even though parts are detached. For NPR News, I'm Chuck Kornbach in Milwaukee. Nissan is raising wages for workers at its manufacturing plants in Mississippi and Tennessee. Stephen Bazaha of the Gulf States Newsroom reports this comes after the United Auto Workers ratified new contracts with wage increases at the big three automakers. Nissan will increase pay by about 10 percent for many of its workers at its three southern plants. Nissan did not mention the UAW's contract as the reason for the increase, but one of the key ways for automakers keep unions out of their southern U.S. plants is by paying close attention to union wages. The newly ratified UAW contract with GM, Ford, and Stellantis raises pay by 25 percent over the next four and a half years. That kicked off announcements from foreign automakers this month promising their own raises, including Hyundai, Honda, and Toyota. For NPR News, I'm Stephen Basaha. 
The nine people on board a U.S. Navy plane that overshot a runway in Hawaii made it to shore unharmed. The plane ended up in a bay at a marine base about 10 miles from Honolulu. Weather may have been a factor. It was cloudy and rainy around the time of the incident. You're listening to NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. A new unit of the state police will combat hate crimes in Massachusetts. It's called the Hate Crimes Awareness Response Team. It'll also train local police departments to respond to hate crimes. Governor Healy says the new initiative comes as reports of hate crimes locally have reached their highest level in about 20 years. One hate crime is too many, and we're seeing more than one a day in Massachusetts. So it's necessary that we say firmly and forcefully, whatever the bias, whoever the target, hate has no place in Massachusetts. The state will also invest nearly a half a million dollars to increase education and bias prevention training in schools. A man who helped shape Massachusetts politics is being remembered as a brilliant strategist. John Walsh died yesterday of cancer. He was 65. Walsh was a key architect in getting Deval Patrick elected governor in 2006. State Democratic Party Chair Steve Kerrigan says Walsh will be best remembered for understanding grassroots organizing and inspiring the next generation of leaders. John's biggest legacy is how he empowered a new generation of of leaders. He was, on top of that, just one of the nicest, sweetest guys in the world. Congressman Jim McGovern says Walsh was a great political organizer, but, quote, more importantly, he was just a fundamentally nice guy. Boston Bruins player Milan Lucic is due in a Boston court today. Boston police say Lucic was arrested after his wife accused him of pulling her hair and trying to choke her inside their North End home. He's facing an assault and battery charge. The Bruins have placed Lucic on indefinite leave from the team. Volunteers are working this morning with one of Boston's oldest child welfare organizations to provide Thanksgiving meals to local families in need. The nonprofit Home for Little Wanderers will distribute about 400 turkey dinners to families throughout greater Boston and New Hampshire. Leslie Suggs is the organization's president. She says she's seen a significant increase in poverty and food insecurity among the families they serve. These are issues in our community that are Um, front and center for families every day. Um, And I think visibility and education is absolutely the start. Um, And that's one of the things that this turkey drive highlights. The nonprofit Project Brad says about one quarter of all families with children in Massachusetts currently struggle to buy food. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Institute for Experiential AI at Northeastern University. Join Stephen Wolfram, a computer and data science pioneer, for a free seminar, From Fundamental Physics to AI, November 29th, virtually or in person. Register at ai.northeastern.edu. The Celtics wasted an 11-point lead in the fourth quarter last night in Charlotte. They lost to the Hornets 121-118 in overtime. The Seas return home tomorrow to face the Milwaukee Bucks. Overtime wasn't any better for the Bruins. They lost 5-4 to the Lightning last night in Tampa. The Bees will visit the Florida Panthers tomorrow. Increasing clouds today, it'll be in the lower 40s. Rain moves in overnight. There might even be an inch of snow in the higher elevations of central Massachusetts. Temperatures will be in the 30s. Rain tomorrow and in the mid-50s. It'll be sunny for Thanksgiving Day. It's 27 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure the future of Africa's wildlife and wild lands. Learn more at awf.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Lloyd Austin, the U.S. Secretary of Defense, made a surprise visit to Ukraine to start the week. The United States stands with Ukraine, and we're going to be with them for the long haul. Ukraine also had a different visitor this week, snow. And that matters because as temperatures drop, military strategists believe Russia may attack the power grid again. An additional U.S. aid to Ukraine, at least for the moment, is not guaranteed. NPR's Nathan Rod is in the Ukrainian capital with a status report. Hey there, Nate. Hey, good morning. I hope you've got your winter weather gear um, ready to go. <laughs> okay, good. And a good pair of boots. Why was Austin in Kiev this week, do you think? So Austin says it was to show Ukrainian leadership that the U.S. is still committed to the country, as you heard him say, for the long haul. Uh, and that is, you know, certainly meaningful here with winter approaching, people bracing for more power blackouts and fighting slowing on the front lines, or at least expected to do. Uh, but I think Austin's audience wasn't just Ukrainian leadership. As you well know, U.S. Congress is still debating whether to approve a new block of funding for Ukraine that the Biden administration has been asking for. And the administration has said that current funding for Ukraine could run out in a couple of months. Yeah, when you think about it, I mean, every rocket that the Ukrainians fire, every shell that they fire, that's that's money. That's often U.S. dollars. So how significant is it for Ukraine that the that the the pipeline for funding, it, it's not at the end, but it, you could see an end? Yeah, I mean, look, if the U.S. stops giving military assistance to Ukraine, it would be a very big deal. But we're not there. The European Union is steadfast in its support. So Ukraine is still getting support. You know, supplying Ukrainian soldiers with tanks and missiles and trainings and other aid like air defense, winter gear. Uh, you know, here in Kyiv, air defense systems have been critical to protecting people and critical infrastructure uh, from Russian missile and drone strikes. Both nights this weekend, Russia launched waves of drones at the capital. And the folks we've been talking to say that they expect those kinds of long range attacks to really ramp up here as temperatures drop and fighting slows on the front lines. Similar to previous winters, I guess. Exactly. I mean, yeah, last winter, Russia made a concerted effort to really make life miserable for as many people as they could here in Ukraine, attacking power plants, heating facilities, electrical infrastructure. Uh, we've seen how Ukraine is bracing for that again this winter. You know, they put in sandbags around electrical substations, repairing and restringing power lines. Uh, but there's no doubt that this is going to be a really tough winter ahead. Nate, I have to note, uh, there were analysts and Ukrainians uh, almost euphorically predicting big offensive gains this year, 2023. There was a much, much hyped offensive this year that seems to have dropped off. Yeah, I mean, look, Ukraine, Russia, neither side has made significant territorial gains over most of the last year. Uh, and we were talking to soldiers about that in the Donetsk region, that's far eastern Ukraine last week. Asking them how they're doing, they were saying, look, we're really tired. Uh, here's an artillery man who goes by the call sign Zvin. Soldiers don't give their names because of security regulations. I think it's because uh, we are not to uh, see uh, the um, movement. Yeah. Yes. So the movement and uh, last year we saw that we were happy with. So the mood was in a high level. And now it just we, we will understand what we we will do, what the commanders will say. It's not a problem. Yeah. But uh, it just died. Hmm. And I think that's true for most people in Ukraine, Steve. NPR's Nathan Rott in Kyiv. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you.
The company OpenAI, known for creating ChatGPT, has had three CEOs in as many days after the board fired former chief executive Sam Altman. Now Microsoft has scooped up Altman in a reshuffling. Now this might sound like just some internal company drama, but a lot of people who follow the company and the industry say it likely reflects a larger conflict, a culture war over artificial intelligence. Here's Altman testifying at a Senate hearing in May. As this technology advances, we understand that people are anxious about how it could change the way we live. We are too. The Economist magazine has a term for people who disagree about the risks and benefits of AI boomers, and no, that's not a reference to baby boomers, and doomers. So what's the divide about, and is it having a real effect on the technology and its development? We've called David Kieran for this. He's editorial director at MIT Sloan Management Review. Welcome. Good morning. Good morning, Michelle. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for coming. So in the context of AI, who is a boomer and who is a doomer? So the the boomers are those people who see AI as like changing the nature of medicine. Uh, they're going to be new. Uh, they anticipate better medicines, new scientific breakthroughs more efficient businesses, and there's a greater democratization of access to work. Um, Those are some of the things that uh, they're very optimistic about. Mm -hmm. The doomers are those who see great societal uh, peril in uh, AI. And there's there's, there's like a catalog of problems that they see. And I, I tend to divide them into three groups. One is of a technical nature that these, especially uh, LLMs, the large language models that uh, these ChatGPT and other um, genera- uh, g- generational a- generating AI uh, 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 technologies do. So the technical type is there's bias, there's discrimination, there's mm-hmm. inaccurate information, there are hallucinations, toxic content. That all depends on the data sets the LLMs are trained on. And then there's like another group is about human manipulation. LLMs can be manipulated and this is, uh, they can be manipulated by bad actors, but there are uh, other, other uh, ways that humans can uh, manipulate the LLMs. Um, okay, but, and what's the third? But there's, there can be a gray market for LLMs. Mm-hmm. Sorry? Oh, what's the third group? We just have some other Societal. stuff we want to talk to you about, so I'm just hoping I can get this third thought from you. Oh, sure, I'm sorry. The uh, societal ones, there's... What's going to happen with human creativity? What's going to happen with human learning? What's going to happen with human relationships? Um, when you can uh, like have your own sex bots in, in, in your room. And then there's another one, is this going to intensify the displacement of workers sure. from the work from the okay. economy? So is this divide having an effect on the development of AI? It, it is. And uh, you can see, we've seen uh, very brilliant people leaving some of these large tech organizations because they don't see... Uh, uh, organizations like Google or Meta or it's like uh, uh, putting in place enough guardrails uh, for the technology. Hmm. So that's so. So the U.S. government is one of these entities seeking to put some guardrails around AI. Would you put them in the Doomer category? No, I I would put them in the the the, the cautiously uh, Boomer uh, 
category. They're, okay. they're, I think they're, they're trying to straddle the line between the two, really. So is there any consensus within the industry over what responsible AI looks like? I mean, just having seen this dispute sort of spill out into the open, if that's in, in fact what we're seeing, is, is there a sort of a consensus somewhere that we don't necessarily see right now? There, there are those who, who see responsible AI as focused more on the technology itself, and that's where you need to be most responsible. And they, they focus more on like how the, uh, the AI gets trained. And, uh, but there's, there's another, there's another uh, category where people are, uh, people are, are, are really focused on uh, reining in uh, the uses of AI. Okay. So before we let you go, we have 20 seconds left. If Altman stays with Microsoft, what could that mean? Well, I'm not sure what it means for their like multi-billion dollar investment in open AI, but uh, it, it means that there's going to be more consolidation of uh, a AI talent in these very large uh, technology companies. Okay. That's, All right. We have to leave it there for now. Let's keep uh, keep keep talking about this. That's David Kieran. He's with MIT Sloan Management Review. David, thank you. Thank you, Michelle. Some other news now. President Biden put on an apron this weekend to serve an early Thanksgiving dinner to a group of service members and their families. NPR White House correspondent Franco Ordonez traveled with the president to Virginia for a gathering they called Friendsgiving. There are about 400 people sitting in a hangar at the Norfolk Naval Station. Military service is keeping them far from their families this year. It's something that the president and the first lady, Jill Biden, say they can relate to. When our son Beau was deployed, we saw how much his children missed their daddy. And I know how many in this room are living with an empty chair at your table right now. President Biden served mashed potatoes while Jill Biden dished out sweet potato casserole to go with the bourbon brine turkey. The president asked about their hometowns and thanked them for their service. And it's been important to keep in mind, 1% of you, that's all, that protects the 99% of us. 1%. And the sacrifices you make not just those in uniform, but those who are not in uniform. Petty Officer James Kilbane was surprised to see the president so engaged. For me, it's, it means a lot because it shows that he like actually like genuinely cares about like what's going on with the people that are involved in like this whole entire thing. Lily Bauer brought her three-year-old son Torben. Her husband is a mechanic aboard the USS Gerald R. Ford aircraft carrier. She thinks he'll miss Christmas too. This will be the first Christmas that he hasn't been home for my son is three, so they've always been able to somehow make it before Christmas, and this year not so much, so it's a struggle. She says it helps to be with other families who understand what it's like to be without a loved one for the holidays. It's just nice to get with uh, other people that are having a hard time. And her son really likes the bouncy house. I liked it. Yeah? Was it fun? Yeah. Franco. Ordonez, NPR News, Norfolk, Virginia. This is NPR News. Thanks for starting your Tuesday with 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, why Native American voters in swing states may play a key role in the 2024 elections. It's 719. 
WBUR supporters include H&H. Take part in a tradition as Boston is Fenway Park, Handel's Messiah. Three performances, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, handleandhyden.org. And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the engineering design workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com MOS. Can the production of beef be climate friendly? The U.S. Department of Agriculture is spending big in an effort to make that happen. That story on All Things Considered from NPR News. From 4 to 6.30 on WBUR. My name is Robin Inman. Think about what your values are and what's important to you in the big picture and therefore what you hope you can leave as a legacy. Learn more about planned giving at WBUR.org slash legacy. A heads up for commuter rail riders this morning. The T warns of significant delays on the Lowell line because of a switch problem near Lowell. No word on when those delays could ease. Clouds move in throughout the day today. We'll have highs in the low 40s. Tonight, temperatures fall to the upper 30s. Rain is likely overnight, and areas around Central Mass may even see some snow with up to three inches in higher elevations and less than an inch around Worcester. Rain tomorrow with highs in the mid-50s. It's 27 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the FDA. Its Remove the Risk campaign encourages people to dispose of the unused, unwanted, and expired opioid medications in their homes. Learn more at fda.gov slash remove the risk. From Indiana University, committed to moving the world forward and working to tackle some of society's biggest challenges. Nine campuses, one purpose, creating tomorrow today. More at iu.edu. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm A. Martinez. As everyone knows, football is a game marked by violence. But when you watched Barry Sanders run the ball, you saw beauty. You almost couldn't compare him to other football players. He was Barishnikov with the Bolshoi. He was Michael Jackson moonwalking. His body flowed in ways that really others could not. In this Nike ad from the mid-1990s, Dennis Hopper summed it up nicely. It uh, just makes your eyes go all crazy. One time I saw run away two people like a cannonball loose inside a pinball machine. Bing, 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 Barry Sanders quit the NFL in 1999 after just 10 seasons and his fans just couldn't figure out why. A new documentary shed some light on that. It's called Bye Bye Barry and I got the chance to talk to Sanders about it yesterday. Now, Barry, you played for 10 seasons. Uh, When you walked away from the game, you were one season removed from one of the most incredible seasons a running back's ever had, a 2,000-yard season. That's a pretty rare accomplishment for a running back. Uh, From the outside, from all of us looking at you, Barry, it looked like you had plenty left in the tank. So, I mean, from a a physical perspective, how many seasons left do you think you could have gone if you just wanted to just play until they dragged you off the field? (laughs) Well, that's the thing about that business. You, You just never know. I mean, I would guess three to five, depending on what else is going on with the team, how many first round draft picks you devoted to great offensive linemen or devoted them to, to kickers and punters. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I mean, those things, those things matter. Now what the documentary to me 
makes it seem clear is that you left for two reasons. The team did not at the time have a, a reasonable shot at a Super Bowl run. And then the second thing is that a lot of the guys that you had played with for a long time that had contributed to your success were, were gone. Uh, the free agency had, had stripped a lot of the people that you played with uh, away from, from the team. When you actually, you know, decided to do it and, and retired, famously, you told the Lions that you were retiring by fax machine. Uh, you, then you jumped on a plane and went to <laughs> London and you did it right before training camp. Why did you wait so long? I mean, were you just not sure about you were retiring? And did, I mean, how did that thought process go? I wasn't sure uh, when I was going to actually do it, you know, and it was just probably procrastination and and just trying to figure out what was the best way to send the message. And it ended up just being through fax, which, hey, look, in the late 90s, fax machines were cutting edge technology, you know, so, <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so, so I had a buddy who worked for um, a local paper. I kind of crafted a statement with him and sent it through fax. Barry Sanders played his hand today, revealing his desire to retire. A shocking announcement has thousands of fans feeling flustered. People are very disgusted with the way Barry handled this, I think rightfully so. They're insulted. The star running back simply faxed in his retirement. When I think about your job, I mean, professional athlete, probably one of the, from the outside looking in, Barry, one of the coolest jobs you could possibly have. Um, you have people around you that take a lot of pride in what you do. It's family. I know your dad took a lot of pride in the fact that you were a, a professional uh, football player. Um, but then, you know, you got all kinds of people like fans and everything that also take pride in what you do. Does it ever get to a point where at times maybe you were playing and working for them more for yourself? Um, I think there can be that temptation to do that. And, I, and I'm sure that that's happened with many, many athletes. I don't, I don't know that I can say that it happened in my case. You know, you see some of these guys, you know, like some of the colleagues that I played with, like a Brett Favre who retired and came back, you know, the bottom line is it's a tough thing to walk away from. So you mentioned Brett Favre and I was going to ask you about him and also Tom Brady, you know, retiring then unretiring. Could you relate to any of that? I feel like I could. Uh, football is one of those things where you may get a chance to retire on your terms, but you may not. I mean, it's just just one of those games. The fact that someone went back on it, even even Jordan, you know, Jordan retired and unretired. You know, it's hey, it's okay to change your mind. Uh, I know I was excited when Jordan unretired. <laughs> I was the most excited, you know. So so uh, so yeah, I could I could relate. Did it ever come close for you to unretire? Did it ever get to the point where you even thought about it for a second? I wouldn't say it ever came close, but I, I mean, did I think about it? I, I guess you could say yes, I, I, I thought about it. I don't know if that's the same as just missing it. I know, I know, mm. I, I knew I would always miss it. You know, you said something earlier about on your own terms, which I think is what everyone strives for. You want to be able to, on your own terms, decide when it's over and not have someone, or like in your case, the team cut you, release you. It's just a, such a deflating, demoralizing moment to have your boss say, you know what, we got to let you go. Were you ever worried that that would happen to you and you wanted to just maintain control of that? I think it was something that I was certainly aware of just because being in the game, you, you see it happen. Uh, you know individuals that it happens to, and it was it was tough for me to to see an aging OJ or aging Earl Campbell, you know, aging Walter Payton, yeah. aging Tony Dorsett. When the Tony Dorsett went to Denver, I just I just 
I don't know. That that impacted me. You know, yeah. I couldn't believe that was happening. Yeah, you know that 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 guy had had gotten to the age where Dallas Cowboys had moved on from him. Yeah, you know. So I I guess I could relate in some way to that. And I think that's yeah. I think that's the difference with you. You gave your fans. You know, you you went out on top, and that's what, how they remember you. I think sometimes you just have to look at something and just enjoy it. I mean, there's no one else in football that can make these moves. When God created Barry Sanders, even he didn't know what he made. Is anyone still mad at you, Barry? Is anyone still upset with you over how you retired? You, I mean, right before training camp and with very little advance notice, is anyone still upset at you? Um, probably, <laughs> right? I, I would think. I mean, I don't, I don't know for sure. Plenty of people were then. I'm pretty sure there, there's still a few out there until maybe the Lions win the Super Bowl this year. <laughs> You know, and they forget all about the stuff that happened in the back. <laughs> that is Pro Football Hall of Fame running back Barry Sanders. The documentary is called Bye Bye Barry. It's on Amazon Prime Video. Barry, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next and coming up at 745 on WBUR's Morning Edition. We'll learn about the two circuits in our brain that determine whether and how much we like salty food. It's 729. If you're hitting the road to visit family for Thanksgiving, use the drive to catch up on your favorite WBUR and NPR shows live or use the WBUR app to rewind shows and play them back. Download the app for free before you hit the road. In my job, balance is really important. I'm Aisha Roscoe, host of Weekend Edition. So when I look at my old minivan, I'm balancing on the one hand, new car payment, and on the other, driving around for another year with that smell of spilled milk in the back. Whenever the balance tips for your old car, give it a chance to do one more good deed. Donate it to this station and turn it into the programs we all love. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The head of Hamas says the militant group is close to a ceasefire agreement with Israel as negotiations also continue on the release of hostages held by Hamas. The charity Doctors Without Borders says some of its staff members were hit by an Israeli airstrike in Gaza. They vehicles came under direct attack when they were moving through a supposed safe corridor and one of them was killed and one of them was injured. And the patient who was injured remains in one of our premises in the north, desperately requiring medical evacuation that we have been unable to secure. That's Natalie Thirtle speaking to the BBC. Tens of millions of people in the U.S. are traveling for the Thanksgiving holiday. NPR's Joel Rose says the Transportation Security Administration expects large crowds at the nation's airports. TSA is expecting to screen a record number of people, 30 million in total in the 12-day period that started last Friday, culminating on Sunday after Thanksgiving, which could be the biggest single day total ever. Today and tomorrow are also going to be very busy. Road travel is not quite back to pre-pandemic levels yet, but it's close. AAA is forecasting the third highest total ever, about 49 million people on the road. AAA says regular gas is about 36 cents a gallon cheaper than this time last year. 
This is NPR News. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thousands of people are stuck on a wait list for public housing in Massachusetts. One of those is a central Massachusetts woman who's fighting cancer and just became homeless. She spoke with WBUR's Todd Wallach. Last month, Deb Libby was evicted from her Worcester apartment. She moved into an Airbnb, then a motel, and now a shelter after running out of money. Libby needs surgery for cancer, but can't schedule the operation until she has permanent housing. I'm terrified. I can't sleep. I can't eat. I can't keep anything down. I've lost a lot of weight. Even my doctor was like, you know, hey, you gotta, you got to start to eat. I'm like, oh, yeah, I, I would if I could. It just doesn't stay down. The 57-year-old hopes the government can give her public housing soon. More than 180,000 people are on the state wait list. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Todd Wallach. Officers with the Provincetown Police Department will begin wearing body cameras starting next month. The department says the initiative brings it in line with a 2020 Massachusetts police reform law. Advocates say the cameras will add another layer of transparency to community policing. The peak of Thanksgiving travel in Massachusetts kicks off today. Analysis from AAA Northeast finds that today and tomorrow are expected to be the busiest travel days in the state. Officials are warning drivers to give themselves some extra time to get to their destinations. To help with the traffic, the state is opening the HOV lane on southbound 93 between Boston and Quincy at 2 this afternoon. At the airport this morning, the website FlightAware reports a a dozen flights in and out of Logan Airport are delayed with two cancellations. It's 733. WBUR supporters include the Elliott Hotel, a luxury boutique hotel in Boston with Uni Restaurant and Sashimi Bar for holiday parties and weekend getaways. ElliottHotel.com. The Bruins lost to the Tampa Bay Lightning last night 5-4 to in overtime. The Celtics also lost in overtime. They fell to the Charlotte Hornets 121-118. to Highs in the low 40s today. It'll grow increasingly cloudy. Tonight, upper 30s, rain overnight, and higher elevations in central mass may even see a few inches of snow. Tomorrow, showers with highs in the mid-50s. It's 27 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Columbia Pictures and Apple Original Films presenting Napoleon. Directed by Ridley Scott and starring Joaquin Phoenix, Napoleon tells the story of Napoleon Bonaparte's rise to power, exclusively in theaters Thanksgiving. From StoryWorth, each week, StoryWorth emails a loved one a question about their life. After a year, they'll publish family memories into a bound book to keep forever. Learn more at StoryWorth.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. When you hear political strategists talk about key voting blocks that could tip an election one way or the other, a few groups come up over and over again. White evangelicals, the black vote, soccer moms, the Latino vote. But what about Native American and indigenous voters? NPR politics reporter Jimena Bustillo has been looking into this, and she's here to walk us through where a group that's often been overlooked could play a deciding factor in next year's elections. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. So you've looked at states where the population of Native eligible voters is pretty high. And it turns out that many of these are in prime swing states. So tell us what some of the places that you looked at that we should keep our eyes on. 
Well, in many of the key swing states over the last several election cycles, Native American voters have been credited for the outcomes. Here's Tajin Perez, the deputy director of Western Native Voice in Montana, explaining how this played out in his state in 2018 with Democratic Senator John Tester's race. Knowing that on election night, before I went to bed, uh, and before all the Native precincts started reporting in fully, that it looked like a loss for for Tester, but by the next morning, after the Native precincts reported in completely, the victory was was Tester's. Tester's now up for re-election again in 2024. North Carolina is another pivotal state. In 2016, we saw the Lumbee tribe, which is not federally recognized, help former President Donald Trump win the state in large part because Trump advocated for their federal recognition. And in 2020, tribes in Arizona, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Nevada are credited with helping Biden win those closely watched states. Alaska, another state to watch, where there is at least a quarter of a population that identifies as Alaska Native and Native American. So how how would their impact be measured? How do analysts like this know that or have the credibility to say that this is the deciding factor, that these voters are the deciding mm-hmm. factor? Well, it really comes down to the voting margins. And Native voting organizers say that the total population size of Native Americans is often bigger than the margins by which these candidates won. And in these really tight swing races where just a few hundred or a few thousand votes can really make the difference, that's where these groups recognize their influence. Here's Jacqueline DeLeon, a senior attorney at the Native American Rights Fund. If you vote consistently, And if you vote with intention uh, to protect your community, you can really make a difference, especially on those marginal states. And it's important to remember that in many of these states and even in others that I don't highlight, there is pending litigation for fighting for the right to vote for Native Americans. Wait a minute, explain that. Because Native Americans are citizens. They're both citizens Mm -hmm. of their Mm -hmm. tribal nations and they're also citizens of the United States. So what's the impediment to their voting? Well, Native voting organizers told me that there are some unique challenges that Native voters face during elections. This can include not having polling locations close by. Many report having to drive hours to a polling location that may not even be staffed if they live on reservations or not having a personal mailbox to receive mail-in ballots since P.O. boxes are common as opposed to street addresses. And they also say that this can also mean outright intimidation. Another barrier is also just general voter education. Many groups are starting early with their voter registration and education efforts ahead of races that could be really close in 2024. The Native American Rights Fund's Jacqueline DeLeon says that both political parties have been negligent in reaching out to Native Americans in both rural and urban areas. In some cases, she thinks parties and campaigns may be intimidated or don't know where to start, but the cost of not doing so could be the results at the end of election night. That is NPR politics reporter Jimena Bustillo. Jimena, thank you. Thank you. Artificial intelligence is getting so good at mimicking someone's appearance and voice that it can be hard to tell if they're real. This is a particular problem for celebrities. NPR's Chloe Veltman is going to tell us about some new tools that could make it easier to detect these deep fakes and a little harder for AI systems to create them. When Scarlett Johansson found out her voice and face had been used in an online video to promote an artificial intelligence app, she took legal action and the video was taken down. But many such deepfakes can float around the internet for weeks, like this one featuring social media personality Mr. Beast. If you're watching this video, you're one of the 10,000 lucky people who'll get an iPhone 15 Pro for just $2. 
Trying to stay ahead of the AI bots has become a game of whack-a-mole for famous figures. Deepfakes continue to proliferate online. Meanwhile, roughly half of the respondents in two recent AI consumer surveys said they can't distinguish between synthetic and human-generated content. Generative AI has become such an enabling technology that we think will change the world. However, when it's being misused, there has to be a way to build up a layer of defense. That's Ning Zhang. His research team at Washington University in St. Louis is developing a new tool that may help people combat the misuse of deepfakes. They call it anti-fake. It scrambles the signal such that it prevents the AI-based synthesized engine from generating an effective copycat. This research is still very new, and Zhang says it's not clear how it will scale. But in essence, before publishing a video online, you would upload your voice track to the anti-fake platform. Hey guys, welcome back to my channel. Your voice still sounds normal to the human ear after being scrambled by anti-fake, but it sounds messed up to the AI system, making it hard for it to create a clean-sounding voice clone. Hey guys, welcome back to my channel. Zhang says anti-fake doesn't keep your voice on file and you would keep the rights to it. But he admits the tool won't protect you if you're someone whose voice is already widely available online because, sorry, AI already has access to your voice. All defenses has limitation, right? Anti-fake is expected to become available in a few weeks. In the meantime, there are other solutions, like deepfake detection. Some deepfake detection technologies embed digital watermarks in audio and video to identify if the content was produced by AI. Others can tell if something is fake by examining tiny details like how the sounds of words sync up with the speaker's mouth. I think it's just the next evolution of how we protect this technology from being misused or abused. That's Rupal Patel. She's a professor of applied artificial intelligence at Northeastern University and a vice president at the AI company Veritone. I just hope that in that protection somewhere, we don't end up throwing the baby out with the bathwater, right? Patel says generative AI can do amazing things, like helping people who've lost their voices speak again. My voice as I knew it was taken away from me. Take the actor Val Kilmer, who's relied on a synthetic voice since losing his real one to throat cancer. But now I can express myself again. Patel says developers need large sets of high-quality recordings to produce these results. So we shouldn't only focus on restricting how AI is used. And so I think it's a balance. But she says when it comes to preventing deepfake abuses, consent is key. In October, members of the U.S. Senate said they're discussing a new bipartisan bill that would hold the creators of deepfakes liable if they use people's likenesses without permission. Right now, so-called right-of-publicity laws vary from state to state. Only half have them, and they all offer differing degrees of protection. Chloe Valtman, NPR News. This is NPR News. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR's Morning Edition, this week we enter the country's fourth holiday season with COVID-19. We'll get advice from experts on how to navigate the risks and what precautions still make sense. Low 40s today under skies that will grow increasingly overcast. Upper 30s tonight with showers likely and central mass may see some snow. Less than an inch around Worcester but up to three inches in higher elevations. Tomorrow mid 50s and more rain. It'll clear up by Thanksgiving Day. It's 27 degrees in Boston.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Medicare plans for every lifestyle and budget. Visit bluecrossma.com go. And Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help veterans stay warm by giving coats to those in need. Oceanstatejoblot.com. One of the state's biggest companies says it's brought on 700 new workers in the last year. Boston-based software firm PTC says that uptick means an 11 percent jump in its headcount. Company leaders tell the Boston Business Journal the firm now has more than 7,200 employees, with about 1,000 of them in Boston. Wreath makers in Vermont say climate change is making it difficult to fill orders during the thick of the pre-Thanksgiving rush. Abigail Giles explains. As human-caused climate change pushes the first frost back, it's making it hard for the industry to meet its deadlines. That's because balsam fir trees don't set their needles until after the first hard frost. This year in northern Vermont, it came on Halloween. Still late, but better than last year. Peggy Day Gibson owns Northeast Kingdom Balsam in Glover, Vermont. I'm collecting wreaths, and they all look wonderful, and the brush looks great. And the fact that it got cold and stayed cold, and we had continuous hard frost, that was good. Still, Thanksgiving falls early this year, and Peggy says that means makers and sellers like her are feeling crunched for time. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Abigail Giles. It's 744. Support for NPR comes from this station and from DataIQ, a platform for everyday AI, dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot And from the law firm Cooley LLP, with offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, Cooley advises entrepreneurs, investors, financial institutions, and established companies around the world where innovation meets the law. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. If you are thinking about brining that turkey for Thanksgiving, and full disclosure here, I will be doing that, here is something to consider. Food and drinks that are really salty can be appealing one day and off-putting the next. And scientists think they figured out why. NPR's John Hamilton reports on a study that found two separate brain circuits that affect the taste for salt. Our relationship with salt is complicated. Yukioka, a scientist at Caltech, says sodas, sports drinks, and even tap water all contain a little salt, also known as sodium chloride. You enjoy low-sodium water, but if you imagine very high concentration of sodium like ocean water, you really hate it. Unless your body is really low on salt. That's pretty rare in people these days, but Oka says experiments with animals show that when salt levels plummet, the tolerance for salty water goes up. If your body needs sodium, then animals immediately start liking ocean water. They crave sodium, and they can tolerate it in high concentrations they would normally avoid. Oka wanted to know how this system works in the brain, so he and a team of scientists studied mice. They showed that one set of neurons toward the back of the brain regulates the craving for salt. If you stimulate these neurons, then animals run to sodium source and then start eating. Another group of neurons toward the front of the brain normally sets an upper limit on salt tolerance. 
But when salt levels get low enough, Oka says, these neurons get switched off. This means that the sodium craving and the sodium tolerance are controlled by completely different types of neurons. The finding, which appears in the journal Cell, is part of a growing field of study called interoception. It deals with internal sensations like hunger and pain. Stephen Lieberlis, a cell biologist at Harvard Medical School, says scientists already know a lot about how the brain deals with sensory information coming from the eyes, ears, nose, and skin. The brain also receives tons of sensory information from the body, from the heart, the lungs, the stomach, the intestine, and how these work has remained more mysterious. The new study suggests that brain cells involved in salt tolerance are controlled by hormone-like substances called prostaglandins. These substances, which circulate in the bloodstream, are best known for their role in causing inflammation, fever, and pain. Liberalist says it now appears that prostaglandins also play a role in salt tolerance. So the question is, how is the same chemical, the same prostaglandin molecule, reused across biological systems in different contexts? Answering that question might make it possible to develop a prostaglandin drug to discourage salt overconsumption. Nirupa Chaudhry of the University of Miami says we tend to eat too much salt because evolution prepared our bodies for a world in which salt is scarce. Wars were fought over salt just a few centuries ago. So we think of sodium chloride table salt as so plentiful in our diet and in our environment, but it wasn't always. Chaudhry says too much salt can lead to high blood pressure and heart disease. Salt ingestion is a major issue. Calorie ingestion is a major issue. So it becomes really critical to understand how all of these different systems work. She says understanding how the brain processes saltiness could help food companies develop a palatable salt substitute. At least one previous effort failed badly. It tasted really foul. <laughs> so people didn't want to use it. Chaudhry says finding a better option may require more research on not only how the brain monitors salt intake, but how it interacts with our taste buds. John Hamilton, NPR News. This is NPR News. The news from Israel and Gaza continues to change quickly. Stay with 90.9 WBUR for the politics, the personal stories, and the history you need to understand this moment. Keep listening. Coming up at 8.20 on Morning Edition, Palestinian citizens of Israel are struggling amid the Israel-Hamas war, with many losing their jobs over social media posts. It's 7.50. WBUR supporters include Boston Early Music Festival with their Grammy-winning Chamber Opera Series on Thanksgiving weekend in Boston, November 25th and 26th, BEMF.org. In times of crises, journalism plays a vital role. I'm Lisa Mullins. At WBUR and NPR, our job is to ferret out the facts and report the fullest version of the truth possible, challenge assumptions, hold officials to account, bear witness, and tell the stories of those with the most at stake. We can't do our job without your help. Make your year-end contribution at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Thank you. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Tuesday morning. The leader of Hamas claims the group is nearing a deal to release hostages, but there's been no comment from Israel. 
Secretary of State Lloyd Austin is in Ukraine today looking into ways the U.S. can help the country's efforts in its war with with Russia as winter sets in. Wisconsin's Supreme Court will hear arguments today in a redistricting case that could result in new voting maps ahead of the 2024 elections. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by New Art Center in Newton, with art classes for adults, teens, and kids. Enroll now to spark your creativity this winter at newartcenter.org. And Vertex. Working for people living with sickle cell and genetic kidney diseases, cystic fibrosis, and more. Careers in Boston, Cambridge, and Providence at vrtx.com. It'll grow cloudy today and we'll have temperatures in the low 40s. Tonight, those fall to the upper 30s and overnight we'll get some rain that may become a few inches of snow in central Massachusetts. The rain continues tomorrow. It'll be in the mid-50s. It's 27 degrees in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. A Canadian says he wants compensation from his government. Michael Spaver is one of two Canadians who were in China in 2018 when Chinese authorities jailed them. China acted after Canada detained a top executive from the tech company Huawei. Now Mr. Spaver says he was unwittingly caught up in a spying scandal. Here's NPR's John Ruich. Spaver and former Canadian diplomat Michael Kovrig were imprisoned for nearly three years in China on charges of spying. Canada and others have called their arrests hostage diplomacy. Indeed, they were picked up by the Chinese police within days of Huawei CFO Meng Wanzhou's arrest in Canada. And more than a thousand days later, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau made this announcement almost immediately after Meng was allowed to return to China. About 12 minutes ago, the aircraft carrying Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor left Chinese airspace and they're on their way home. That was the summer of 2021. Now Canada's Globe and Mail reports that Spavor is seeking a multi-million dollar settlement from the government of Canada. He alleges that he was caught up in the affair and jailed because information he shared with Michael Kovrig was passed along to the Canadian government and its intelligence sharing partners. NBR could not reach Spaver or Kovrid, and Spaver's lawyer declined to comment. I find the entire thing very puzzling. Roland Paris is a former advisor to Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, now at the University of Ottawa. Michael Kovrig was not a spy. He was doing what diplomats do, which is reporting back to headquarters what he was seeing and hearing. He wasn't running agents. He wasn't acting covertly. Spaver is a fluent Korean speaker and had cultivated a rare relationship with reclusive North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. He was instrumental in orchestrating former NBA star Dennis Rodman's 2013 trip to North Korea. Paris says even if he shared information with Kovrig, it probably wasn't espionage. There's no realistic universe in which Michael Kovrig could be understood as a spy. The Canadian government says the detention of the two Michaels was arbitrary, unjust, and unacceptable. And in a statement, spokesman John Babcock said perpetuating the notion that either of them was involved in espionage is only perpetuating the false narrative under which they were detained. But China's embassy in Ottawa says recent reports highlight the fact that China is a country that's ruled by law and that the cases of Kovrig and Spaver were handled in strict accordance with the law. John Ruich, NPR News. We're going to spend a few minutes now talking about a word that you've been hearing more and more as the war between Israel and Hamas drags on. And that word 
is genocide. Israel says the October 7th massacre by Hamas took more than 1,200 lives, mostly civilians. Some have called that genocide or the beginning of one. In Gaza, the Palestinian health ministry says Israel's military response has taken now more than 12,000 lives, and that number is growing, mostly civilians and thousands of children, and some are calling this genocide. Now, we know this is a word that many people use to express their horror and revulsion at the loss of life, but we realize that it also has specific meaning in international law, and we wanted to know what that is. So our co-host Leila Fadel posed that question to David M. Crane. He is a founding chief prosecutor on the U.N. Special Court for Sierra Leone. Whomever is perpetrating this international crime has to have a specific intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group. If I was charged with investigating and prosecuting genocide, I would have to have, in large measure, a smoking gun. In other words, someone, a rebel group, a person, a uh, head of state, directing his organizations to destroy in whole or in part a people's. It's a difficult crime to prove. I'm going to play you an excerpt from an Al Jazeera interview with Craig Mohiber, a former director of the New York Office of the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights. He resigned protesting the UN response to Israel's military campaign in Gaza. And when he resigned, he called what is happening in Gaza a textbook case of genocide. The intent by Israeli leaders has been so explicitly stated and publicly stated by the prime minister, by the president, by senior cabinet ministers, by military leaders, that that is an easy case to make. It's on the public record. I'm just curious what you think. As someone who has actually investigated this type of charge, is it an easy case to make? It's not an easy case because you have to have that smoking gun. So, I, you know, I respectfully disagree with his approach on this. Mm -hmm. uh, if you look at both parties in this tragedy that is unfolding, the prime minister of Israel has to specifically state that I intend to destroy in whole or in part the Palestinian people. And I would suggest respectfully that that has not been said. Now, they have a long-term problem politically, practically, and legally related to their treatment of the Palestinians. But I would beg to differ. I don't think one would categorize that as genocide. But let's flip this on the other parties, uh, Hamas. Hamas has clearly stated that they intend to destroy, in whole or in part, the Israeli people and the Israeli state. That is a declaration of a genocidal intent. And so one can argue a little bit more strongly that Hamas has actually started and committing a genocide as well. I'm going to read you some of the things that have been cited to us as examples of intent. Several from the defense minister. We are fighting human animals. Gaza won't return to what it was before. We will eliminate everything. Knesset members, one saying, right now, one goal, Nakba, a Nakba that will overshadow 1948. Nakba referring to the mass displacement of Palestinians in 1948 during the war around the creation of Israel. Do these show intent? All of this is largely political rhetoric. You know, when you have a genocide, you have to really have someone who is specifically can actually carry out the genocide as well. And statements by members of the Knesset or members of Congress or whomever. The defense minister. Who say these things, you know, that's not intent. So we're speaking about the legal terms. But as we speak, there are innocent civilians being killed. And there is a lot of concern from everyone about the images that are coming out and the amount of people that have been killed. I mean, is there, what can be done in this moment? Like what should be done when you think about it from a legal perspective? 
Well, try to hold the parties to the rule of law and protect civilians. This is not going to end peacefully. This is not going to end anytime soon. All the international community can do is try to contain, assist, discuss, and to hold conversations with everyone to mitigate the suffering on both sides. David Crane, former war crimes prosecutor and scholar of international law, thank you for your time and your insights. It's been my pleasure. For more coverage and differing views, go to npr.org slash updates. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Layla Falden. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Low 40s today and it'll grow cloudy. Upper 30s and rain overnight. Central Mass may see some snow showers. Mid-50s tomorrow with more rain likely. It's 27 degrees in Boston and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. I'm executive editor for News, Dan Mozzi, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. U.S. officials and the head of Hamas say an agreement with Israel to release hostages is close, but there's been no comment from Israel. It's Tuesday, November 21st. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, we'll go to a California border town where asylum seekers awaiting processing are living in squalid conditions. Scabies, parasites, necrotic, scorpion bites, burns, lots of burns. Also this hour, Massachusetts officials are starting to fill vacant state subsidized housing units revealed by a WBUR investigation, but many are still empty while people linger on wait lists. Yeah, I definitely need housing to get the surgery and it needs to happen. I can't keep putting this off. Plus what COVID precautions still make sense for Thanksgiving family gatherings. Increasing clouds in the 40s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Kristen Wright. The leaders of several nations are meeting virtually today to discuss the Israel-Hamas war. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres is also participating. The BRICS bloc of developing countries may adopt a joint statement on the humanitarian crisis. An award-winning Palestinian poet who's been published in The New Yorker and other U.S. publications is among those arrested by Israeli troops in Gaza. His brother says he was taken into custody while trying to flee to safety with his family, as NPR's Lauren Freyer reports from Tel Aviv. Mossab Abu Toha recently completed a poetry degree at Syracuse University, and he was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award this year. In a recent New Yorker essay, he wrote that life under Israeli bombardment in Gaza was like being in a cage. The only two things I can do are panic and breathe, he wrote. In a social media post, his brother says Israeli troops took Abu Toha at a checkpoint but let his wife and children go. Penn International says it's demanding to know his whereabouts and the reason for his detention. The Israeli military did not immediately respond to NPR's request for comment. It says it's apprehended hundreds of people in recent weeks in Gaza, transferring some to Israel for questioning. Lauren Fryer, NPR News, Tel Aviv. South America has been in the grips of some of the hottest temperatures ever for months now, worsened by climate change. In Rio, a Taylor Swift fan at a concert died in the extreme heat. NPR's Alejandra Barundo reports. 
Brazilians know heat. Usually we have high temperature compared with the, the, the North Hemisphere in the U.S. or Europe. That's Lincoln Alves. He's a climate scientist at Brazil's National Institute for Space Research. But he says this year is much worse than usual. That's because of human-driven climate change plus El Nino, which makes temperatures hotter in South America. Even these people that are more, I would say, familiar with these kind of climates face uh, stress. Last week, before Taylor Swift's concert in Rio, heat and humidity made it feel like it was 140 degrees. Friday night, a concertgoer suffered cardiac arrest and died. The last few months have been some of the hottest in Brazil's history. Alejandra Burunda, NPR News. A U.S. Navy plane wound up in the water at Marine Corps Base Hawaii, about 10 miles from Honolulu yesterday. This is Marine Corps spokesman Sergeant Orlando Perez. Overshot the runway and landed in Kaneohe Bay. The nine crew members on board escaped unharmed. Weather may have been a factor in the incident. Today is expected to be one of the busiest air travel days this Thanksgiving holiday, along with tomorrow when the Federal, Federal Aviation Administration says nearly 50,000 flights are scheduled. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. A big storm system could affect Thanksgiving travel east of the Mississippi. Widespread and heavy rain is predicted over the next two days. The National Weather Service says the system could produce potentially high impacts during the busy Thanksgiving travel period. High winds, hail and tornadoes are all possible. The New York City tri-state area could see major rainfall. Black Friday isn't just Black Friday anymore. Retailers are starting their sales days or even weeks ahead of time. NPR's Joe Hernandez reports, though it may be partially a marketing ploy, the longer sales are still expected to mean plenty of deals. Amazon and Best Buy started their Black Friday sales a full week early this year. Lowe's got going with its discounts in late October. Retail experts say companies are stretching out their Black Friday sales to draw in more customers and make more money, and there's plenty to be made. The National Retail Federation estimates that shoppers will spend at least $957 billion in November and December of this year. These seemingly endless Black Friday deals also give customers a chance to shop around for a bargain. To ensure you get the best deal, experts recommend using online price comparison tools to see how the cost of a certain item has changed over time. Joe Hernandez, NPR News. There is a fruit recall underway. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is linking some peaches, plums, and nectarines distributed by HMC Farms to a listeria outbreak that has made people sick in several states. Also, Signature Farms. I'm Kristen Wright, NPR News. From WBMR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Immigrant rights groups in Massachusetts say the state must continue to provide social services even as it begins to house families in need of shelter in unconventional spaces. Officials announced yesterday that the state will house 25 families in empty conference rooms in a Department of Transportation office in Boston. Stephanie Rosario Rodriguez is senior program director with the Massachusetts Immigrant and Refugee Coalition. She says while the temporary space is not an ideal solution, it should not hamper the flow of resources to families. Do they have access to food and clean water? Does this family have any medical conditions that need a provider right away? So medical attention or at least access to medical providers is going to be essential. And also that the needs of the children are being met. 
The state has begun a wait list process for families in need of space in state-run family shelters. Restaurant workers in Massachusetts are a step closer in their battle for a higher minimum wage. The campaign to raise wages for workers who earn tips has gathered enough signatures to go to the statewide ballot next year. More now from WBWAR's Arena Machavariani. The state's minimum wage was raised to $15 per hour this year for many workers. But restaurant employees make just $6.75 an hour. The rest of their income depends on tips. Activists say their ballot measure would close that disparity. Congresswoman Ayanna Presley appeared at a Boston event last night to support the proposal. Tipped workers are doing so much for this economy, for our families, and they cannot take care of their own. I want you to know that I give a damn about your livelihood, but I care that much more about your lives. The city of Chicago recently passed a similar bill. For 90.9 WBUR, Amirina Majawadiani. The morning commute on the red line is a little faster this morning. The T says it removed nine speed restrictions between JFK, UMass, and Park Street. That section of the line was closed the last two weekends. The T says there are still restrictions on 22 percent of the system. The agency plans to remove all of those by the end of next year. President Biden and the First Lady are due on Nantucket today. They're expected to arrive for their annual Thanksgiving stay on the island. According to the family, they've been to Nantucket for Thanksgiving every year since 1975. Biden is expected to attend the town's tree lighting ceremony on Friday. It's 8.08. WBUR supporters include the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kaufman.org. The Bruins lost to the Tampa Bay Lightning last night in overtime. The final was 5-4. to four. The Celtics also lost in overtime. They fell to the Charlotte Hornets 121-118. to Increasing clouds today. It'll be in the lower 40s. Rain moves in overnight. There might even be an inch of snow in the higher elevations of central Massachusetts. Temperatures will be in the 30s. Rain tomorrow and in the mid-50s. It'll be sunny for Thanksgiving Day. It's 28 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to W. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Residents of Plains, Georgia, are preparing for memorial services for the former First Lady Rosalind Carter, who died this week at the age of 96. In a few minutes, we'll tell you how the Carter family's hometown is planning to say goodbye. But first, this year marks our fourth Thanksgiving living with COVID-19. But the picture is very different from just a few years ago. So how should we think about COVID precautions during these upcoming holidays? Here's NPR's Will Stone. Scouring stores for tests, eating turkey outside, hypervigilance around a stray cough. Many of us have our tales of early pandemic Thanksgivings. Dr. Helen Chu says for most Americans now, including herself, COVID doesn't need to loom over their holidays. We will be gathering with friends and we're all up to date on our vaccines. So we're approaching it like a normal holiday. Chu, who's at UW Medicine in Seattle, says, of course, normal still comes with some caveats. First, don't show up if you have any symptoms. And second, think about who you'll be with. I have the luxury of being in a space where we don't have a lot of exposure to high-risk people. More than 16,000 people are being hospitalized with COVID in the U.S. each week. 
Dr. Emily Landon at UChicago Medicine says the patients she sees in the hospital tend to be highly immunocompromised. They have multiple underlying health conditions. They're older. That 75, 80-year-olds are definitely at much higher risk than younger individuals, but that doesn't mean it's a death sentence at all. Thanks to early treatment and vaccines, Landon thinks about how to strike the right balance in her own life. After all, she has an autoimmune condition and takes medication that suppresses her immune system. Plus, her mother is 80 and undergoing cancer treatment. We're definitely being careful, but, you know, we're still going out. I went to the opera this week. I wore a mask during the performance. Didn't stop me from going and didn't stop my mom from going either. Her take is that most Americans can afford to get together for the holidays without many precautions, like testing or wearing masks at the table. Instead, she says, try to focus on cutting down your risk ahead of time. Wear a well-fitting N95 or K95 mask while traveling and in crowded indoor areas. Justin Lessler is an epidemiologist at UNC Gilling School of Global Public Health. He says cases are starting to pick up in much of the country and will probably peak next month or in January. It's going to be a persistent threat with some variation, just like we see with flu. So what's he doing differently? Well, in years past, Lessler says he'd take a rapid test before Thanksgiving, maybe wear a mask, even if he was going to be around other people like him who are basically healthy and middle-aged. Now I probably would partially because I have the reformulated vaccine, but also because I think the risk to those folks is a lot less now. But if you knew there was a relative there in their 80s, I would almost certainly take a test before I went. Rapid testing is tricky. The tests do still work with the Omicron variants, but it's clear they're not great at picking up an infection if you don't have symptoms. Even if they're far from foolproof, Dr. Daniel Griffin at Columbia University sees them as valuable. I know there's hesitancy because my wife was suggesting this morning, oh, you know, we should all test before we spend Thanksgiving with your parents. I'm like, oh, man, because then if I'm positive, I don't get to go. And then I'm like, and give it to my parents. And OK, yeah, <laughs> it makes sense to me. He says another simple way to make things safer is just turn on the fans or open windows. Then there's the vaccine. Despite federal recommendations, only about 15 percent of adults have opted for the updated shot. Griffin says, yes, that does give a boost for three to four months. But he says, assuming you got that first series of shots, three for most people. It's not as though after a few months goes by that you're naked and unprotected. You have a durable 90% reduction in your risk of ending up in the hospital or not surviving that infection. Griffin is well aware that COVID is still dangerous for some. He sees those patients. But he also stresses that because of this built-up immunity, plus treatments, many Americans should be able to enjoy time with family without COVID on their minds. Will Stone, NPR News. For many migrants, the first glimpse they get of America is three open-air camps in the cold. Migrants cross the border and are turning themselves in at the camps in Southern California, and they say it is the Border Patrol that is instructing them to wait in one of the open-air locations while they await processing. The camps are at the edge of Hacumba Hot Springs, California. The town has around 600 permanent residents and now also each day hundreds of temporary ones. NPR's Jasmine Garst visited these camps recently. Hey there, Jasmine. Good morning. What did you experience? 
Well, the first thing that comes to mind is the cold. It was so cold. I was wearing a jacket and I was freezing out there. And migrants, many underdress, they end up making makeshift tents with pieces of tarp, sticks, old clothing. There's no water, there's no food, there's little to no bathrooms. And people get so cold, they pick up brush and make bonfires. I mean, it looked like a scene from a refugee camp, but the difference is there was no infrastructure or official human aid. I mean, we're talking about as many as 300 people at a time at each camp, and many are children, and there's just no food provided. Uh, people have to go to the bathroom out in the open. Did you say there's no official humanitarian aid of the kind you would expect? No. I mean, in any other situation like this, you would expect to see the Red Cross, Doctors Without Borders, the National Guard. But here it's just locals from the town of Hakamba and volunteers going to hand out supplies and do basic first aid. I spoke to one woman named Karen Parker. She, she was born and raised in this area. She's a retired social worker, and she goes down there a few times a week. She told me at times she's had to use veterinary medications on people. Here she's describing what she sees at these camps. Scabies, parasites, necrotic, scorpion bites. Seizures. Seizures. Diabetic emergencies. Yes, broken bones, burns, lots of burns. And as winter approaches, she and other volunteers say they're getting increasingly worried. I want to zoom out a little bit from these camps and figure out what is happening here. Of course, you're on the U.S.-Mexico border. There are a lot of people who try to cross at different places. Exactly uh, how are migrants getting to those three camps and why? So there's a gap in the U.S.-Mexico border wall. It starts in Hakamba, and it's several miles long. And people cross through there and hand themselves over to Border Patrol asking for help. And Border Patrol takes them to these camps and tells them to wait. Wait a minute. They cross over and they find a Border Patrol agent and say hello? Yes. In fact, as I was driving down there, I was flagged by migrants from Turkey who had just crossed. They were exhausted and they asked me, please call Border Patrol. It was shocking, but these people have been told, this is how you will be allowed to stay in the U.S. I spoke to one young man at the camps. He is Kurdish from Turkey. His name is Ramazan Bishar. He said he was escaping government repression, which is why he turned himself over to Border Patrol. My plan is just uh, get my green card and stay here all of my life. We will stay. We don't have any choice. Okay, so that's a classic story, but why would it be that these particular migrants or asylum seekers would end up in these open-air camps out in the cold? Well, I asked Customs and Border Protection multiple times for an explanation. I've gotten no answer. I think one of the main problems is that Official asylum processes can take months on end, and some people are getting desperate enough to just cross the border on their own and hope for the best. NPS Jasmine Garst, thanks very much. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Plains, Georgia, the birthplace and home of President Jimmy Carter, is preparing to say goodbye to former First Lady Rosalind Carter. Grant Blankenship of Georgia Public Broadcasting talked with residents and visitors. Monday, Kathy Williams and her husband were busy washing the dust from the season's peanut harvest off the porch of their home in Plains. 
Kathy Williams says, of course, Rosalind Carter's passing is sad. We hate to see death, but we know there's life after death, and we know where Miss Rosalind's going. Williams says most people in town share that assurance. Well, yes, I think we all, as Plains people, shared a Christian faith. And so, again, we take comfort in knowing, you know, there are greater things to come in this life, but we also know the great things that she did in this life. And so, says Williams, Rosalind Carter set a particular type of example from their shared faith. The given heart. I mean, they were givers of, you know, thing, everything that they had, they shared. We need to share, you know, with others to help other people. It was in the midst of helping other people where Winston Churchill met Rosalind Carter at one of the events run by the church they both attended, Maranatha Baptist. Every Thursday, Saturday of the month, we give away a distribution of food to the poor. And that's when I met her, you know, I shook her hands right here. To me, she was humble. Just no political, you know, she was always one person to another, you know. The town of Plains has long been a tourist destination because it is the Carter's hometown. And they're expecting a lot of visitors who want to pay their respects. Susie Miskovic and Jasmina Blanton of Clearwater, Florida, took a break from their tour of other historic sites in the region. For them, the example Carter set was basic. No matter the politics, it seemed like they really cared about, you know, the people around them. And very sad yeah, to hear. Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. Great testimony to yeah. um, just, just living a decent life that, that's caring of others. Three days of memorial events are scheduled for next week, starting Monday, with a motorcade from Plains to Atlanta, where Rosalind Carter will lie in repose at the Carter Center. There will be a public service on Tuesday, and then she'll be laid to rest on the Carter family property in Plains on Wednesday. For NPR News, I'm Grant Blankenship in Plains, Georgia. This is NPR News. Good morning. Thanks for starting your Tuesday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, a record 30 million people are expected to fly for Thanksgiving this year, and traffic on the roads may reach pre-pandemic levels. We'll get tips on how to navigate what might be our one of the busiest travel seasons ever. It's 821. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders and changemakers to advance equity and power a better Boston. The Boston Foundation. Move equity. Move Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. I'm Robin Young. Woohoo! Women's sports coverage has jumped up to 15% of all U.S. sports coverage. Sports scholar Shira Springer says it's not enough. We are making progress with the amount of coverage, but 15% is still so low in the bigger scheme of things. That's here and now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Low 40s and increasingly overcast today. It's 28 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Fisher Investments, 
Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and Social Security. FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Amgen, a biotechnology company working to fight the world's toughest diseases. In a new era of human health, Amgen is dedicated to accelerating the pace of change to push beyond what's known today. From American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at ajws.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. The war between Israel and Hamas has inflamed emotions worldwide and provoked an internal struggle for the one-fifth of Israeli citizens who also identify as Arab or Palestinian. For many of them, this war pits their country, Israel, against their people, Palestinians. And many say it's compounded by discrimination. NPR's Lauren Freyer begins this report in Tel Aviv. Two years ago, Samah Abu Shadeh graduated from college and landed her first job as an economist at an Israeli financial services company in a big skyscraper in Tel Aviv. The first Arabs that uh, come to this company. She was proud. She kept her head down, worked hard. She'd commute from the old Arab town of Jaffa, where her family has lived for centuries. At work, she was careful not to talk about politics and regaled her colleagues with details of her wedding planning instead. Actually, all of them was my friends before the war. But when Hamas attacked Israel last month and Israel began bombing Gaza in response, her colleagues stopped being friendly, she says. Many were posting grief and rage on social media. Abu Shadeh shows me a video clip she posted on Instagram. They killed many, many of them, and there was not any reason. This is from a documentary movie. Yes. About an alleged massacre of Palestinians during the war over Israel's creation in 1948. The clip is from an Israeli documentary that won awards last year. She didn't offer any commentary, just posted the clip on her personal account. On the phone. But the next day, her boss called. Colleagues are offended, he said. A letter from HR followed, which she showed me. It says the company supports freedom of expression, but that during war, there is a new line, and she crossed it. So Abu Shadeh was fired. This is all absurd. We're not talking about feelings that are hurt. We're talking about massive political persecution against Arab citizens inside of Israel. Sausan Zahir is a human rights lawyer who represents Arabs who suffer discrimination in Israel. Many have long felt like second-class citizens here, like they're seen as a fifth column whenever Israeli-Palestinian violence flares. Before this war, Zahir said she had lots of clients, and now... I have 20 times more. Every phone call is people who are being fired from their jobs or suspended from colleges and universities, but they're also being arrested and indictments are being submitted. Israeli police have issued dozens of indictments for incitement to violence and terror since this war began. One of those arrested and released in recent days is Hanin Zoabi, a former member of Israel's parliament. 
Do you take your shoes off or keep them on? At her home in Nazareth in northern Israel, she describes how she and five friends tried to call for a ceasefire in a public square, but were detained even before they could unfurl any protest banners. We didn't have the time to hold the banners. We, we were on our way, and we were six people. And the police, they didn't allow us without banners, without anything, even to stand, to stand in the middle of Nazareth. Police had denied them a permit to protest. Now, Zoabi is a prominent dissident who's been arrested before. But this time, she says police were singing victory songs while booking her. The police uh, men and women hold the Israeli flag and they were dancing. In the police station? In the police station, dancing. This is a new, this kind of very strong sense of revenge. Hamas's ability to penetrate Israeli security, to kill and kidnap so many people on October 7th, it prompted some Israelis to ask whether militants had help from the inside and to eye their Palestinian neighbors with suspicion. Extremist settlers have increased their attacks on Palestinians in the Israeli-occupied West Bank. More than 215 people have been killed there since the war began. Palestinians inside Israel don't dare speak up, feeling like their every move is under scrutiny, Zoabi says. If you didn't open your mouth, they will start to say, your silence is suspicious. It is not enough if you shut your mouth. You should express that you agree with them, you identify with them. And even those determined not to stay silent have to tread carefully. Off a rural road in northern Israel, neighbors gather in a barn at dusk to stealthily paint peace banners. We are a group of Arabic and Jewish people trying to change the situation that we are in. So we are writing that we are together, we are light in this dark. Nabila Farah is a Palestinian-Israeli writing those words in Arabic. While a Jewish woman named Shear writes the same thing in Hebrew. They plan to unfurl this from a highway overpass together. Shear wants to be an ally, but she's scared herself, and she doesn't want me to use her surname. Because I'm afraid to get arrested. I'm a Jewish person. It used to be just Arabs, but actually nobody's immune. What's happened in Israel since October 7th? Free speech is uh, terminally ill. There are some people um, who got arrested for liking, you know, pressing like. For pressing like on social media to anything that could be construed as undermining Israel during this war. Back in Tel Aviv, the young economist who lost her job, Samach Abushadeh, is mulling a labor lawsuit. But she's scared. She asked me not to name or contact her former employer. She's worried it could hurt her prospects for a new job. And she and her fiancé have a mortgage to pay. Their wedding was supposed to be this month, but it's been delayed by the war. We're in the beautiful old Arab quarter of Jaffa, where your family has roots. And we're looking out at the skyline of Tel Aviv with the skyscrapers and all the big multinational companies and Israeli industry. Before October 7th, you were part of that world and this world. And now? Now, she says, this war has made me feel like I never belonged there. Lauren Freyer, NPR News, Tel Aviv.
This is NPR News. The conflict between Israel and Hamas, deep division in Congress and a looming election, devastation driven by climate change. These are serious times. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. WBUR and NPR bring you the latest developments on all of these fronts and the context to help make sense of what can, at times, feel like a senseless world. Keep our journalism strong with your year-end contribution. Give at WBUR.org and thanks. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The head of the International Committee of the Red Cross is in Qatar amid signs that a negotiated ceasefire between Israel and Hamas could soon be announced. NPR's Lauren Freyer is in Tel Aviv. In a statement posted on social media, the head of Hamas, Ismail Haniyeh, said his group is close to reaching a truce agreement. Negotiations over a possible pause in the fighting and release of some of the hostages kidnapped in Israel have been going on for weeks. Haniyeh says Hamas has now delivered its response to Qatari mediators. Arab and Israeli media have been citing unnamed sources on possible contours of a deal. A multi-day pause in attacks, during which there would be an exchange of some of the roughly 240 hostages, possibly for some Palestinian prisoners in Israel. Asked by a reporter at the White House whether a deal is close, President Biden says he believes so. Lauren Fryer, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Jordan's military says it expects to open a field hospital in Gaza within a week. It would have 41 beds to treat Palestinians wounded in the fighting. Jordan has already begun moving equipment and supplies to the Egyptian border. Police in Germany say 17 people were the focus of yesterday's raids on homes in Bavaria. Those questioned are suspected of spreading anti-Semitic hate speech and targeting Jews online. This is NPR News. From WBWAR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Today is predicted to be the start of the busy Thanksgiving travel season, and this year in Massachusetts, travel is expected to be close to pre-pandemic levels. That's according to a new analysis from AAA Northeast. Mark Shieldrump is a spokesperson for AAA. He says the pandemic has made traffic patterns unpredictable. So when you're planning your travel, sometimes we have to expect the unexpected and we find ourselves in a traffic jam at six in the morning uh, on a day when when you think that the roads would be clear. So budgeting additional time when you travel is, is critically important. For people flying, the T is adding Silver Line service between Logan Airport and South Station. Right now, the website FlightAware says there are 17 delayed flights and two cancellations at Logan. We'll have more on the nationwide travel rush coming up in a few minutes here on Morning Edition. An outside firm is set to review the Canton Police Department. Residents voted in favor of the audit at a town meeting last night. The call for a review comes amid allegations of police corruption in a murder investigation. Officials tell the Boston Globe a public report will be available at the end of the audit. A new report finds that outdoor recreation contributed more than $11 billion to the Massachusetts economy last year. The U.S. Bureau of Economic Analysis also found that the industry created over 100,000 jobs. Governor Healy says the newly formed Office of Outdoor Recreation will continue to grow the industry in the state. Some of the fastest-growing outdoor activities in Massachusetts include snow activities, sailing, and climbing.
The Rolling Stones are going back on tour and making a stop in Foxborough. The legendary rock band announced this morning they'll perform at Gillette Stadium on May 30th of next year. It's their first concert there since 2019. Tickets go on sale December 1st. It's 834. WBUR supporters include Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square, with cooking and baking workshops, technique and regional cuisine series, and cooking couples classes. CambridgeCulinary.com. The Celtics' six-game winning streak ended last night in Charlotte. They fell to the Hornets 121-118 in overtime. The Seas will host the Milwaukee Bucks tomorrow. The Bruins lost 5-4 in overtime to the Lightning last night in Tampa. The Bees will visit the Florida Panthers tomorrow. Highs in the low 40s today. It'll grow increasingly cloudy. Tonight, upper 30s, rain overnight, and higher elevations in central mass may even see a few inches of snow. Tomorrow, showers with highs in the mid-50s. It's 29 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Columbia Pictures and Apple Original Films presenting Napoleon. Directed by Ridley Scott and starring Joaquin Phoenix, Napoleon tells the story of Napoleon Bonaparte's rise to power, exclusively in theaters Thanksgiving. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Millions of Americans, my family among them, will travel this week for Thanksgiving. The Transportation Security Administration, the TSA, is bracing for more air travelers than ever before, but this comes at a time when the U.S. aviation system is showing signs of strain. NPR's Joel Rose covers transportation and joins us now. Hey there, Joel. Hey, Steve. Okay, at least I won't be flying, but uh, those who do, what what can they expect? Yeah, the number of people flying now is actually higher a little bit than it was before the pandemic. TSA is expecting to screen a record number of people 30 million in total in the 12-day period that started last Friday, culminating on Sunday after Thanksgiving, which could be the biggest single-day total ever. Today and tomorrow are also going to be very busy. Road travel is not quite back to pre-pandemic levels yet, but it's close. AAA is forecasting the third highest total ever, about 49 million people on the roads. Can't wait to be one of them. Is the aviation system, though, ready for the increased volume? There are serious concerns about that. The Federal Aviation Administration commissioned a safety review by outside experts after a series of close calls on runways across the country this year. That group issued a 52-page report last week, and, and the group had major concerns about the shortage of air traffic controllers that has left many key air traffic facilities short-staffed. That's forcing controllers to work overtime and grueling schedules. The group also raised concerns about outdated equipment and facilities. The report says, quote, urgent action is needed to maintain safety. Okay, is the FAA having an an urgent response? Well, the newly commissioned FAA administrator, Mike Whitaker, says the agency welcomed that report. Whitaker told reporters yesterday the agency is already taking some steps to speed up the hiring of more air traffic controllers. Uh, That includes hiring qualified students directly from aeronautical schools and using new high-resolution training simulators to take some of the pressure off of the agency's training academy in Oklahoma. And Whitaker says he's also looking at ways to improve the success rate for trainees. There's a fairly high uh, failure rate in the academy and in facilities. 
My initial focus has been on how to make these numbers go up quickly without lowering standards. But there really are no quick fixes here. It takes a long time to train air traffic controllers. The FAA has a thousand fewer of them than it did a decade ago. And at the current hiring rate, it is just barely keeping up with retirements. Okay, let's assume the air traffic controllers keep the planes uh, uh, flying in the way that they should. What experiences should people expect in the cabin when they're traveling? Full planes and crowded overhead bins. I talked to Sarah Nelson, who's the head of the union that represents flight attendants. Here's some of what she told me. The holidays have always been a time period that flight attendants sort of dread going to work because the flying is much harder. You have inexperienced people. You're answering more questions. Um, there's fewer of us, which then often means that passengers are trying to work things out between each other and you don't have a referee <laughs> there right at the start. Nelson says, please keep all of that in mind and be nice to your flight attendant and your fellow travelers. She says, thankfully, most people are. Joel, do you have any encouraging news? The airlines say flying patterns have changed somewhat since the pandemic and that people are departing earlier than before and working remotely from their destinations. So you're seeing the flying spread out a bit more evenly across a bunch of days, not all on a few big days. But the big wild card this week is the weather. There's a good chance of rain across much of the East Coast today and tomorrow. So the possibility for weather-related delays is there. Thanks very much, Joel. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. That's NPR transportation correspondent Joel Rose. When an incarcerated woman gives birth, she's typically separated from her baby within days or even hours. Minnesota now allows some of these moms to spend more time at home with their new babies. Elisa Roth has this report. When Victoria Lopez went into labor, she was in jail in southern Minnesota, waiting to get sent to prison on drug charges. Her twin girls were delivered by emergency C-section, and when they got taken to the NICU at another hospital, Lopez wasn't allowed to go. So I had to say goodbye to my daughters, and I didn't know when I'd see them again. And um, I sat there in that room alone. Well, not alone. I had the guards with me. (laughs) She was in that room when she got a call from the parenting coordinator at the prison. Lopez remembers the woman telling her, Due to your situation with the twins needing NICU and extra care, we'd like to put you in this program. The program is Healthy Start which lets incarcerated women stay home with their babies for up to a year. Safia Khan is deputy commissioner for the Minnesota Department of Corrections, which oversees Healthy Start. The idea was how do we prevent that separation from happening at a very critical time for the development of that newborn baby and to allow for that mother-child bond. Where are you going? Victoria Lopez's Facebook page is filled with pictures and videos that illustrate that bond. Her cooing to a tiny baby in a bouncy chair and talking to them as they crawl around. A handful of states, including Indiana and Washington, have nurseries that let incarcerated mothers keep their babies with them inside prison. But Minnesota lets women stay home with their child. All pregnant and recently postpartum women who come into the state's prison system are considered eligible. So far, 38 women have qualified, though only 12 have been accepted. Women can be rejected if their sentences are too long or if their parental rights have been terminated, among other reasons. The Department of Corrections is trying to make it more accessible. But there's a far bigger question. 
why these women are getting caught up in the criminal legal system to begin with. For me, the most important and critical piece of this puzzle is just how complicated these families and circumstances are. Rebecca Schlafer is a professor at the University of Minnesota whose work focuses on families and incarceration. She's currently evaluating the project for the Department of Corrections. We need to move upstream to earlier interventions and earlier investments in maternal and child health as a crime prevention strategy so that we are not at the end of a line here saying, how do we solve all of these really complex social problems with one intervention called the Healthy Start Act? Because there will always be complicated situations like Victoria Lopez's. Soon after she was arrested, Lopez started substance use treatment. She got a job and enrolled in community college. But the judge sentenced her to 88 months in prison anyway. So the Department of Corrections legally can't let her stay out any longer. Lopez started her sentence just days after her twins turned one. She's currently appealing the decision. For NPR News, I'm Elisa Roth in St. Paul. There are more than a million species of insects on the planet, and love them or hate them, bugs prop up life on this planet. But now some of these species are declining rapidly, so scientists have to figure out how to save them. That's this afternoon on All Things Considered. Listen wherever you are, on your phone, your computer, your smart speaker, or on the radio. This is NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes on WBUR, the Marketplace Morning Report talks to economists about the index of leading economic indicators, which showed this week that there are signs of a coming recession. But it's been predicting a recession for 19 months, and it hasn't happened yet. Low 40s today under skies that'll grow increasingly overcast. Upper 30s tonight with showers likely. And central mass may see some snow less than an inch around Worcester, but up to three inches in higher elevations. Tomorrow, mid-50s and more rain. It'll clear up by Thanksgiving Day. It's 29 degrees in Boston. Now in business news, an Oregon company is settling claims it violated the Clean Water Act at 11 of its scrap metal facilities, including some in Massachusetts. The conservation Law Foundation says runoff from Schnitzer Steel's facilities has been polluting rivers and coastlines with toxic metals. It says that was happening at sites in Attleboro, Worcester, and Everett. Schnitzer is not admitting wrongdoing, but it will pay nearly $2 million as part of the settlement. Massachusetts turkey farmers are wrapping up the busiest part of their year. People who ordered turkeys are picking up birds and other Thanksgiving offerings from local farms. Jim Risher is the owner of Raymond's Turkey Farm in Methuen. He says there are benefits to buying turkeys from local farmers. They're raised differently than the commercial ones. We still do it kind of the old way. They have a better feed and they have more space. So, you know, all around it, they're a better bird. People get one from us or another local farm in Massachusetts. They don't understand why. Richter says demand for local turkeys is slightly down this year because of the economy. It's 845. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, showcasing the all-new 2024 Subaru Outback. Available now. CitysideSubaru.com. And Uncommon Feasts. 
offering full-service culinary event catering for your distinctive social and corporate gatherings. Gather around. Let's feast. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Massachusetts has filled only a fraction of its vacant state-subsidized apartments since a WBUR investigation in late September found more than 2,000 units sitting empty. WBUR's Todd Wallach checks in with one woman who is among the many on a very long wait list for one of these places to live. Come on in. Deb Libby has been living in this cheap motel room near Old Sturbridge Village in Central Mass. The room has blood orange walls and thick gold drapes over the window facing the parking lot. Libby is running out of money, so she's desperate to find a new place to sleep. I'm very concerned that I will be sleeping in my truck, which is not comfortable and is full. Libby was evicted from her Worcester apartment last month. She piled clothes in the back of her pickup truck, put other belongings in storage, and threw the rest away. But the 57-year-old shows off a piece of jewelry she couldn't let go. Uh, My kids got this for me when they were little. It's just a a gold necklace with a light blue sapphire, and I wear it all the time. Libby has needed memories like that to get through the past few months. Her pancreatic cancer came back, she had to give up her job at a hardware store because of health problems, and she had to borrow money just to pay for this room. I'm so stressed out. I, I can't even cry. Uh... I can't sleep. I get sick to my stomach. I can't eat. Libby is one of more than 180,000 people on the state wait list for public housing. A WBUR and ProPublica investigation found more than 2,000 units were empty, sometimes for years. State housing officials vowed to fill as many as possible by the end of the year. So far, they've only filled 143 apartments, or about 6%. The state's plan hasn't helped Libby yet. She's turned her motel bed into a mini office with a laptop and piles of paper as she calls one shelter after another. Hello, you have reached Family Aid Boston. She waits, trying to reach anyone who can help. Please hold while I try to connect you. This is all day. Most of the time, no one answers and she leaves a message. Yeah, hi, my name is Deborah Libby. I'm calling from the Worcester area and I'm looking for um, immediate emergency shelter. <sighs> place on Ashland, um, there was a nice person that I talked to there, but you know, they didn't have anything for at least eight weeks. Libby's attorney, Matt Wishnoff, says many of his clients can't find housing. He works for Community Legal Aid in Worcester, which helps people facing eviction. Rents across the board are being raised precipitously, and it leaves our clients in really vulnerable positions. Wishnoff says some clients stay with friends and family while they look for permanent housing. Not everyone has that option. Quite frankly, they sometimes have to stay in their cars. Worse comes to worse, they can live rough on the streets. That is a situation that I don't even like to think about. It often takes years for people to find public housing, and Wishnoff says Libby needs a place now. Her cancer has spread to the liver. She says she needs surgery, but can't schedule it until she has a long-term place to stay. Yeah, I definitely need housing to get the surgery, I, and it needs to happen. I, I can't keep putting this off. She wishes the state would find her an apartment. She says she has no choice. What am I going to do, give up and live under a bridge? 
<laughs> you don't really have an option of giving up. It's not an option. Libby recently moved into a Worcester shelter, but she is still waiting for a permanent home. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Todd Wallach. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll look at finding ways to get period products to the estimated half a billion women who can't get access to them. Plus, a look back at one of the first interviews with the graffiti artist Banksy. It's 8.50. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Museum of Science. All aboard! Trains at Science Park now open. See model trains in the classic winter landscape or Polar Express in 4D. Visit mos.org. An office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. Since I've set up the Legacy Gift, I feel like a real member of WBUR's family in a big way. And that makes me feel really good. Build a strong future for WBUR. Learn how at wbur.org legacy. Can the production of beef be climate friendly? The U.S. Department of Agriculture is spending big in an effort to make that happen. That story on All Things Considered from NPR News. From 4 to 6.30 on WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Tuesday morning. Hamas officials say they're close to reaching an agreement with Israel that would free hostages, though Israel hasn't commented. Police are searching for a motive after a gunman wounded four people in a Walmart near Dayton, Ohio. And today and tomorrow are expected to be the busiest travel days in Massachusetts and elsewhere in the U.S. ahead of the Thanksgiving holiday. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include the Elliott Hotel, a luxury boutique hotel in Boston with uni restaurant and sashimi bar for holiday parties and weekend getaways. ElliottHotel.com. It'll grow cloudy today and we'll have temperatures in the low 40s. Tonight, those fall to the upper 30s and overnight we'll get some rain that may become a few inches of snow in central Massachusetts. The rain continues tomorrow. It'll be in the mid 50s. It's 30 degrees in Boston. One of the great gifts is knowing what you want to do with yourself. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Total Wine and More, where shoppers can find a great Cabernet, bourbon, or sparkling wine for everyone on their list this holiday season. Total Wine and More. Drink responsibly. Be 21. I'm David Brancaccio in New York. First, the microblogging and advertising platform X has filed a lawsuit against a critic. It is suing a nonprofit called Media Matters for publishing a report about anti-Semitism on X that can play near advertising on the platform. Marketplace's Nancy Marshall-Genzer joins me now with details. Nancy, the MediaMatters.org report has led some companies to pull their advertising from X. What did it say? Media Matters says IBM and Apple have pulled their advertising from X. Media Matters says X placed ads from numerous companies next to, quote, content that touts Adolf Hitler and his Nazi party. In a statement, IBM says it suspended all advertising on X, quote, while we investigate this entirely unacceptable situation. And what does X have to say about this? 
The lawsuit says Media Matters, quote, knowingly and maliciously manufactured side-by-side -side images depicting advertisers' posts on X Corp's social media platform beside neo-Nazi and white nationalist fringe content. The lawsuit says Media Matters portrayed those images as typical for X. Media Matters responded to Musk's criticism by calling him a bully who threatens meritless lawsuits. And all of this comes as Musk is criticized for his full-throated endorsement of another person's tweet that was both anti-Semitic and denigrated minority groups more generally. Yeah, last week Musk tweeted, you have said the actual truth in response to a tweet promoting an anti-Semitic theory that Jews supported hatred against whites. Musk later tweeted that he was not anti-Semitic. All right, Nancy, thank you. Other news media are reporting that Bravo, Oracle, and Xfinity have also pulled ads from the platform formerly known as Twitter. Checking markets here, S&P futures are down a quarter of a percent. Dow futures are down two-tenths percent. NASDAQ futures down four-tenths percent. Ten-year interest rate, 4.43 percent now, the lowest since September. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Schwab. Schwab knows that investors want control of their financial future. That's why when it comes to wealth management, Schwab is dedicated to giving investors more choices. More at schwab.com. Things we hope you can be thankful for this week for Thanksgiving. The sense that you know what you're wanting to do with your life. I wanted to share you uh, with you a moment drawn from my reporting this year for our Skin in the Game project about what the massive video game industry can teach us about economics, careers, and equity. Game companies know they need a more diverse talent pool, and we've been focusing on a nonprofit mentoring program in Oakland, California called GameHeads that teaches video games and multimedia arts to a diverse group of local high school and college students. Now, I'd visited in the spring when the student team started working on their video games and came back some months later to see what they had produced. One of the teams had done what seemed almost impossible. They figured out how to build for themselves a massive multiplayer game that could include players real-time anywhere in the world. One guy named Trevor Cardoza was on the team who'd gone through GameHeads and stayed connected. He'd been laid off from his first tech job in the spring. What would be your dream job, I asked the team. And the answers came fast and furious, starting with Trevor. Since we last spoke, I have actually picked up a job. I'm currently a technical gameplay designer at Crystal Dynamics. Um, and that is basically my dream job. I do want to actually continue with that. We definitely focus on like one or two projects at a time, not a million things scatterbrained. So it's a really good, great culture and I'm loving it so far. I'm Jude and right now I'm targeting product management. That's like the area that I really want to get into. I love the game industry. It's really cool. So a product manager on any of the big game companies would be like my ideal role right now. I met and funny thing is I'm already working as a game designer at Lost Boys Interactive and recently we did ship uh, WWE 23 as one of the titles. Uh, yes, I'm Melissa and I would have to say um, definitely technical artist. It's a really look for role right now and it has more to do with like programming and art at the same time which is like a rare talent that usually people have. I'm Ryan, I'm the gameplay programmer, and I guess I would want to go into a field similar to technical design, gameplay programming, software engineering. Computers are kind of my thing, 
I love to program, see what I type, like, you know, I want to bring it alive. I want to see things happen when I hit that enter button. And <laughs> I just don't see myself doing anything else. I'm Shadozi, and I think my goal is to do anything that's sound creation. So my main thing, my main focus right now is music, but I would be super into making like Foley sounds for uh, video games, you know, TV, anime, I'm really into movies. So anything that's music based. My name is Abdu. I'm studying applied math in college. I've been working as a chef for the past two years. I just can't, <laughs> I can't choose one thing except for game design. You can encompass everything into a game. For example, if suddenly one day I decided maybe I want to be an astronaut, I can make a game about being an astronaut. And it's kind of this kind of fluidity that allows me to be who I am in this space. Yeah, I'm Jordan. I would really like to go into narrative consulting. I've done a lot of things throughout my life in a lot of different areas of work from teaching to architecture to sports and coaching. So I have knowledge in a lot of areas and narrative design is a place where I can really pull that together and create a world within the, the game using all of the things that I know about. And especially as a person of color, in the game development industry, there's a lot of stories that people try to tell that involve people of color and they don't always do a great job. So I want to get my hands in there and help studios tell stories about my people that they don't really know how to tell. The Gamehead students you heard are Trevor Cardoza, Jude Herbert, Matt Zhang, Melissa Romo-Martinez, Ryan Ramos, Chidozi Ibe, Abdu Sek, and Jordan Dabney. All of our Skin in the Game videos are streamable from Marketplace.org. If you know someone interested in going into video game production who likes to click on YouTube videos, Marketplace's Alex Schroeder and Erica Soderstrom produced that segment. In New York, I'm David Brancaccio with our morning report. We're from APM, American Public Media. A morning edition host, Rupa Shanoi, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.